Uh, hey, welcome to E3. My name is Eric. Thanks for spending a couple stormy minutes with us uh, on this Sunday morning. We are in the second week of this series on generosity. We said last week that this was going to be a series of, of challenge, uh, and, and we don't grow unless we're uncomfortable. That's the nature of growth, and, and I desire to grow, and hopefully you do too. And so we're going to be taking a, a look at different ways that the Bible talks about generosity. Um, but this is going to be a little bit of an interesting uh, sermon, message, whatever, whatever word you, you choose to, to label it. Um, and here's why. Last week, uh, we introduced the concept of discovering idols. And I guess I'd ask you guys first, anybody discover that they had any idols this week? A couple of us? Okay, we'll start a growth group, uh, the, the idol recovery growth group. Um, <laughs> But um, if you guys remember, I laid out four ways that uh, Pastor Tim Keller suggested that you can discover idols in your life. And we're just going to bring these things up right, right now, if you guys, just as a reminder. So Tim Keller says, look, um, wh- what does your imagination do when you're alone? Where does it go? Does it dwell on certain things or people or, or activities obsessively? That might be an indicator of an idol in your life. Uh, Keller says, look at where your money flows. If your money flows in a direction um, predominantly over any other direction in your life, that money might be flowing towards an idol. And if you guys remember, um, checks that go to idols are always really easy to write. They're the ones who are like, well, of course I will pay for, you know, my cable, my Comcast bill. That comes first, you know. Um, And then he says, also look at the unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes in your life. And so we all have these things. We have these things that we pray for, these things that we hope for. Some of them, most of them, I dare say, don't come to pass. And uh, grieving and mourning those things is fine in the Bible, but occasionally something, we get told no for something that triggers, in my my world, a a 40-plus-year-old version of a two-year-old temper tantrum, right? And sometimes when we react that way, that's an indicator of something that has taken too strong of a presence in my life. And then lastly, Keller would say, look at your uncontrollable emotions. So he said that there are things for a lot of us that, that drive us to make decisions that we don't understand. You know, things that don't line up with the character that we're trying to cultivate. And he said, if you follow those uh, emotions down and down deep enough, you might find things like fear or anger or resentment. And he said, if you, get, if you drill down to the bedrock of a lot of our lives, you find that behind those fears and behind that anger and behind that resentment is sometimes an idol. And so that's the way you discover an idol. And I was feeling really good about, about the message. And a lot of you folks actually said, man, it was really, really good job, really insightful. But somebody from the community, as often happens, tapped me on the shoulder um, and said, hey, it was really great, that thing that you did about idols. I said, thank you. <laughs> then they said, but they said, what do you do when you find one? And I got to thinking and so what we're going to do is kind of have a split sermon, a split message, because I actually want to go back. It prompted me to think, well, what do you do when you find an idol? If you've raised your hand or if you should have raised your hand and didn't, and you say, look, I've got a thing in, in my life that my time, my talents, my treasures are flowing towards. I know it's there. How do I get away from it? Right? So I just want to spend some time because 
I figured maybe that person is not the only person that might be struggling with that because it's not enough to just say, okay, I've got an idol. Like God says, that's not okay, right? We want our time and our talents and our treasures to flow to him, not the idols. Because if for no, if for no other reason, do you guys remember, what does an idol want from us? Only a little more, right? And over time, a little more is just going to add up to everything. At least that's my experience with idols. So, um, so what I want to do is give you guys four, four words that in, uh, help me turn away from the idols of my life. And then we're going to unpack every, each of these words. And so we're going to do this for a few minutes, and then we'll turn to uh, the, the rest of the content of today. So the four words to dismantle an idol, the key words are name, tell, turn, and watch. These are kind of key words that I just kind of said, okay, well, if I could encapsulate them in a word, name, tell, turn, and watch. And we're going to go through these just one at a time real quick. So the, the, first, the first word is name. It's name the idol. You, you, if you answered any of those questions that Tim Keller threw out, and you got to this thing that, that you know your time, your talents, your treasures are flowing to this thing, um, Sometimes the best thing, sometimes the only thing you need to do is name it. Wow, there's an idol in my life, and its name is, you know, consumerism. Its name is lust. Its name is music. Its name is relationships, whatever. And here's the deal. Um, the good news about this is I think that idols, um, the, the main weapons of an idol is deception, because the main thing that I think an idol wants to do in your life, at least it's done this way of my life, is to disguise itself as everything but an idol. It wants you to just think, well, this is the way life is, or this is the culture, or this is the way I am, and, and this is the way I'm always going to be. And idols thrive on that. Because last time I checked, like the idols in my life are not statues of little men or little women. They don't look like idols, right? Their main weapon is deception. So sometimes when you answer those questions and you're like, whoa, I have an idol in my life and its name is fill in the blank, sometimes that is all you need to do because the idol goes, oh man, he's onto us now. I'm out of here. So if you find yourself uh, with something in your life, uh, that your time and talents and treasures are flowing towards, just say it what it is. Call it what it is. And a lot of times it's just like poking that statue and just flipping it over. Bam, I know you. I know you now. You're not just the culture. You're not just the way I am, the way I am, or the way the, my friends are. This is an idol. Sometimes that's not enough. So the second word is to tell. Uh, name and then tell. And uh, this is where our spirituality gets real pragmatic and real practical, which is really good news for me, um, because I will tell you something about me. I am not interested in any spirituality that cannot be lived 24-7. You can keep any system of faith that stays inside a church building on Sunday. I don't want anything to do with it. I need a faith that works Monday through Saturday and on Sundays, too. And so this is that thing. But it's scary sometimes. Because what you have to do sometimes is you find an idol, is you have to find a friend or a pastor or a growth group leader or a counselor 
And you have to sit down with them and say, I've got an idol in my life, and I need to tell you what it is. And a lot of us, that's uncomfortable because we don't like to take those masks off. But when you do that, two things happen. One is you gain allies. If your friends are any good, some of you guys may have lousy friends. Some of you may have lousy pastors. I don't know. But when you tell somebody this, you're like, look, I've got a problem in my life. Any friend or counselor or pastor worth their salt will say, man, well, let me get in this fight with you. And so they will become your allies in this struggle to dismantle an idol. So they say, oh, yeah, man. And sometimes they might go, yeah, you're the last person to know in this room you have an idol. We've all known it for a long time. And so they will help you. What's the idol look like? Well, it looks like, you know, I buy too much. Well, you know, let us be your accountability. It's a Christian word. Let us be your accountability partners. We will help you kind of uh, white knuckle sometimes through this stuff. And then we'll give you practical suggestions to distract yourself. Right? You gain allies. But more importantly, the second thing you gain when you tell somebody, you make room for God to work in your heart. In my experience, you know, the one thing that God can't work with is a prideful person. Because that's the one person that says, I don't need you, God. And a lot of us fall victim to a spirituality that says, my faith is between me and God. Yeah, sure, I might come in here and sing with, with all you folks on Sundays, but my spirituality is this, one to one. And God knows my heart. He knows all the good things about me. He knows all the bad things about me. True, true, true. But what happens when we leave our spirituality there is it becomes very easy to put on a front to everybody else, including ourselves, including God, that says, if I don't tell anybody, it doesn't exist. So even I know God theoretically knows this thing about me, I can keep my pride intact if my friends don't know it about me. If the words never cross my lips, I have an idol, and its name is, again, whatever that is for you, you know? And so we just keep up our appearances. I'm okay. I'm okay. How you doing? Good to meet you Sunday, you know? Welcome to E3. We're all good. We're okay. But we're not, are we? And so when we tell somebody that, it's a dismantling of, of our pride that says, you know what? Actually, I'm not okay. And the moment we provide that little chink in the armor, I feel like God goes, whoosh, He's like, okay, I can work with this now. I got some room to move. And we're not so prideful anymore. So we get allies and we dismantle our pride just enough for God to start working with us. The third word is turn. I think the other main weapon of idols is uh, habits or unconscious patterns of life. There's a quote, I think it came from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Maybe you guys have heard it, something like, it's like, sow in action, reap a habit, you know, sow a habit, reap a behavior. Everybody heard this phrase, and it goes up to like, sow all this stuff, and you get a destiny, right? And it gets at the idea that, that our behaviors, this thing that I do once or twice, if we, if we let it go, pretty soon it becomes just a, a worn-in track in our life, an unconscious pattern a habit. And if, that is, and if that thing is revolving around an idol, that idol will take that all day long, right? And so we find ourselves 
uh, repeating behaviors. And the other thing is that these behaviors usually revolve around nouns. What's a noun? Person, place, or thing. I, I thought I was going to get to sing the Schoolhouse Rock song because I thought, but you guys are, you guys are on it. It's a person, a place, a thing, right? And these persons and places and things and the habits and unconscious patterns that, we, that revolve around them, they feed idols in our lives, right? So again, as an example, if you have a problem with spending too much money, that thing in your life that represents that, that feeds that, is your laptop. And specifically, it might be a web address that is spelled A-M-A-Z-O-N.com. And we did it once and twice and five times and six times. But before we know it, like that one click ordering, whoo. And it becomes just an unconscious pattern. Could be something more, uh, it could be something different. I mean, it could be something around, you know, uh, a person, place, and thing revolving around lust. Could be a person, place, and thing. It could be actual person where you're like, actually, I've made a person my idol. Right? And this is when our allies become so valuable. Because what we can do to turn from an idol is to interrupt that habit. Place a barrier between the track that I've worn that just goes through these person, places, and things, and we get an ally to say, hey, hey just, just provide a diversion. Get me off this track. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So think of the, the noun that, that involves that. Like I was telling a story earlier today um, and these can be sometimes really harsh decisions. I had a pastor once that was telling a story of a young man in his congregation who was struggling with the thing that a lot of young men struggle with, and that is pornography and the internet. And the pastor told the young man, he said, okay, you know, uh, he didn't use all this kind of language, but he said, the thing in your life is your computer. So he said, meet me at the church on like Tuesday afternoon and bring your computer with you. Kid shows up on Tuesday afternoon meets his pastor. Pastor goes, let's go outside. Bring your computer with me. Goes out behind the church and the parking lot and lifts up a hammer. And this is extreme. And the kid was like, no, 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 no. And the pastor's like, no, no, you need to understand how, essentially, how bad do you want this? Because this, this is the thing that is associated with this idol, with this unconscious behavior, and it needs to be disrupted. Right? Now, I don't know if the pastor smashed the computer. I, you know, sometimes there's this thing I call pastoral embellishment. Sometimes we tell stories a little bit. So I don't know if he actually broke the computer. But it spoke to the, this is how you turn from an idol. You find the person, the place, the thing, the nouns that are associated with that pattern, with that habit, and you go, I got to get this out of my life. And you ask your allies to help you. And then the last thing, the word is, is just Watch. So you do this, you know, and for some of us, we find these idols and we, we, we take these steps and we, we push that idol over. And for some of us who are fortunate with this gift, that idol just stays knocked over for the rest of our life. Thank you, Jesus, right? But if you're like me, you know, I'll push that idol over and then about like a year later, I'll be living my life and I'll be like, that looks like that same idol I knocked over a year ago. How'd that thing get back in my life? So this last word just gets at the idea of, for a lot of us, these idols will stand themselves back up and find their way into our life again. 
And when that happens, you don't need to like be, oh, God's unfaithful or like I've done something wrong. This, I want to tell you, is kind of just the way life is. But here's the good news. Every time, you, every time I circle back around the idols that I've had, even when they're the same idol, it's a little smaller. And the next time, I'm a little more onto its game because I've seen what it does and I've seen its behavior and I recognize what it's up to. And I'm like, ha, 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 I know what you're up to, idol. And I do the same stuff and knock it over. And the next time it comes, it's a little smaller and it's a little smaller and it's a little smaller, right? My life is, is I, I sometimes think of my spiritual life as a spiral, you know? And in, and in one way, I just keep encountering the same stupid stuff I've always done. But in another way, every time I encounter it, it's a little bit easier to get by it. It has a little less control over me. And I get by it and I get through it and I get on with my life a little bit easier. And that's okay. If that's what God's given me, that's okay. So I hope that's helpful. Um, and I hope if you if you found an idol in your life, and for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I still know you're lying. Um, hopefully that's some practical steps for you to just kind of walk through some of this stuff with you. So we're going to move on. And like I said, this is a weird, hard shift to make. But if you guys remember, we're spending three weeks on generosity. Um, we have taken one passage in the Old Testament out of the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And we're looking at one verse that's providing the framework for this series. And we're going to put it up there. And let's all do this thing where we read it all together. Let's do this right now. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. And if you guys remember, uh, uh, I said last week that there's three words in, the, in this verse that are forming the framework of, of this uh, teaching series. So last week we talked about the word storehouse. You know, whose storehouse is your treasures flowing into? Is it flowing into your treasure, your storehouse, an idol storehouse? Is it flowing into God's storehouse? Today we're going to talk about tithes, and it's going to be sort of just a guidelines for giving. And then next week we're going to talk about what does it mean that God says, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour a blessing out on you. So those are the three weeks. So today we're going to be talking real pragmatically, real practically about giving, about the tithe. And so um, we're going to start off with some basic definitions, right? So a tithe in the Bible is 10%. It's 10%. And in the Old Testament, you'll see God say over and over again, you give me 10% of your crops, 10% of what you make, 10% of what you have. It's mine. Give it to me. So the tithe means that. 10%. God says, bring the tithe into my storehouse. In an earlier uh, verse in that same chapter of Malachi, God also says, bring the tithes and the offerings. Anybody ever heard tithes and offerings? If you hung around church long enough, you hear this language. An offering is anything above the tithe. It's not exactly synonymous with the tithe. The tithe is what we would call, I don't know, the minimum level of giving. And an offering goes beyond that. Offering can be financial, and as we talk about it here, it's your time, your talents, your treasures, anything above that. And then the other uh, idea that flows through the Bible that we'll interact with a little bit today is the idea of radical generosity. 
So in the Old Testament, God starts off talking about the tithe, but by the time you get to the New Testament, the model for giving is something called radical generosity, something that goes way beyond 10%. And uh, we'll get to that, but just to, to stay here for just a moment, um, if you've never given before, and, and I, I don't want to assume that we all have the same level of knowledge. If you've never given to the church before and we start talking about tithe, here's the way it works. And this is just received wisdom, really good way to give. You take what you get from a paycheck and you take 10% of it and you say, that goes to the church. You take another 10% of it, you pay yourself, you save it, you live off 80. Anybody ever heard this? 10, 10, 80. 10%, 10%, 80 all right? Now, when you're talking about giving, you, we have to be really, really clear here that, that we recognize that people come from all over the place financially in a community. And it's real easy to, to err on two ways in talking about the tithe. So one way is to just say, look, um, you know, we get, we're going to get real meticulous about the tithe, and people are going to say, well, is it tithe on the gross, or is it tithing on the net? I don't know. I don't know that God knows, or I'm sure God knows, but I don't think he cares, then God's just said, look, just write the check. Because a lot of us, we're not even there yet. God's like, you don't need to worry about where you're taking it from. You just need to get the, the pen out and start practicing your, hand, your, your signature on the check. So you can get real meticulous on one way and say, well, okay, well, how do we, how do we finesse this? Um, and I think what Jesus go, walks around saying so much in the, in the Gospels is like, look, like, we understand that sometimes you might be at a place in your life where you don't have the 10% to give, right? So you don't want to be legalistic and go like, well, if you can't give 10, you're somehow out of the Christian club. But you do need to recognize it as a standard for giving that God takes pretty seriously. And you can't err on the other side and just go, well, it just doesn't matter. Just, you know, give whatever you want. If you want to give 1%, 2%, it's fine. God lays out a standard, says, look, work towards this, the tithe. It's a good way to start, right? And, and, and paying yourself 10%, saving it, and then living off of 80 is just good wisdom, right? And I don't know when we're ramping up Financial Peace University, uh, if you've ever done that, but we will be doing it uh, hopefully sometime this year. If your finances are a mess and you're like, man, I, I need to get to that, then I encourage you to go through that. We've got a lot of people in this community that have gone through it. They can help you. You know, you just need to stop that measure. How do I get there? Like, we can help you with that. So, there's, uh, there's the 10% tithe. Don't take it too legalistically. Just do it. Just work towards it right off the, right off the net, right off the gross, uh, whatever it takes to get there. And then pay yourself and then live off of 80. And then offerings are gifts that come all over the top of that. But here's a, here's a couple principles that I want to kind of challenge you guys in. Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. writes a couple letters. And in the 1 Corinthians 16, he says, I'm going to give you some guidelines for giving. And this is the way the text reads. He says, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. And then it says, don't wait till I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So Carl, just hold that slide there for a second. There's two interesting thoughts here that I want to that I want to uh, lay out for you guys. One is, Paul says, look, do this on the first day of the week. Do it first. It's called the principle of first fruits. Give to God first. 
See, a lot of us, and I've been, my, I've, I've been included in this, uh, we, would go, we would live our life off of 80, 10, 10. Let me get my 80%, and then maybe I'll save 10. Oh, and then God, if there's any left over, if I haven't gone to red eye too many times, I'll slide 10% your way, and we're all good, all right? And Paul says, no, 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 no. When you get paid, this is the first thing you do. The first thing you do is give to God. So uh, I also like the fact that he says this. I love Paul, man. He's like, don't wait until I get there and try to collect it at once. So like, it's not like Paul's at the door. Everybody, where's the money? Where's the money? Paul's like, look, if you're going to give, plan for it. Make it thoughtful. Don't scramble around and hope that you get something that adds up to 10%. Make room for it in your life. Make a budget. Think about this. Paul's like, don't just wait till I show up and then hope that everybody's got enough pocket change in their toga to add up to 10%. So first fruits, give to God first. So in, for, for the rest of our time, I want to kind of, I want to give you guys four principles that, um, that Paul lays out also in, the, in a letter to the church at Corinth. And um, we're going to go through just a brief thing of, of Scripture. But if you ever want to read an amazing passage of Scripture on giving, read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And we're going to read just a few verses of it. Before we do that, I want to give you the context. I want to just kind of lay things out. Our, our, our faith, Christianity, starts in what city? Ha uh-huh. Tallahassee. Ah, kind of. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of our faith. And and, and I would actually say that the mother church is the Jerusalem church, especially for Paul. Paul's out going around the Mediterranean starting churches. But the church that that he came from, the church that everybody came from, was the Jerusalem church, eventually led by the brother of Jesus, James. So Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish religion too. So like... It's a major, major deal. It's where the temple is. Well, about 40 AD, a major famine hits the region. And the mother church is in dire, dire trouble, which is kind of weird to think about. Like you think about, oh man, that would be like the, the, the Catholic church in Rome becoming impoverished, right? Can you ever wrap your head around that? But that's what's going on. The Jerusalem church, the mother church is in financial trouble because a famine has come in and wiped out the land. So Paul writes to these churches and he lays this out. So that's the context for his words here. And he says this starting in verse 12. He says, look, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. The church at Corinth had some wealthy people in it. That, we we kind of know that by the way Paul talks to them. It had a lot of poor people in it too, but it had some wealthy people. And so Paul's saying, look, there's a church in our body, the mother church, the church that sent me to you is suffering. And he's like, you got to, we have to help them. 
And in this passage and in the rest of, of chapter 8 and 9, there are four really, really cool thoughts that I want to kind of lay out for you guys. And they're about generosity. And if you guys remember, we're talking a lot about finances today, but generosity revolves around what three things? Time, talents, treasures. It's not just money. So first thing, true generosity involves humility. It involves humility. And what do I mean by that? Um, it's real easy when you have a lot to give to think that you then get to dictate what the recipient needs. When actuality, if you were a little bit humble and just said, well, what do you need? You might get a different answer. So, and, and when that happens, our best intentions can kind of miss the mark. And we see this a lot lately in uh, what we would call world missions or outreach. You see, for a long time, Western missionaries would show up in under-resourced countries and they would say, we think we know what you need. And they would show up with a lot of money and a lot of things. And what they'd started to discover is that they were destroying local economies. And they were just creating cycles of dependency on the West when what those economies really needed was ways to make, make their own money and keep their own money in their communities. And so like we interact here at E3 with a couple really central texts, called, one's called Toxic Charity, one's called When Helping Hurts, that just takes a look at say like, look, what we think we like to give to people sometimes causes more harm than good, especially around the world. I heard a story once, um, and understand that these are all well-intended. These are not bad people. These are well-intended efforts that just don't take into account the true needs of a community. And my favorite story, and it's kind of funny, was there's a great, uh, there's a great charity that provides livestock for people around the world who can't afford them. And uh, you can, uh, if you're in the United States, like you can buy a piece of livestock. You can buy a cow and these people will provide a cow for a, a, an under-resourced uh, community somewhere around the world. But I heard this story about like, so some of these communities are in Africa. And I heard a story and they're like, you know, this is a great charity and it's well-intended. But the problem is they said, the livestock that they send to us are European livestock. And we live in Africa. And they said, like, so practically speaking, they said a cow, they would send us a cow that's like three times the size of a cow that we're used to dealing with. And like, our children are terrified of the cow. <laughs> and the implication being, you know what would really work for us is an African cow, you know? And it's just that miss of like, our generosity did not take into account the true needs of the community. Just be honest, we see this on the church side a lot where people show up and they're like, hey, I got something. I want to be generous to your church. And a lot of times it's people who may not even come to our community and they're like, what you really need is a bunch of, you know, here's 500 uh, tracks on, you know, how to keep people from going to hell. And it's got a little story about a rock band that ends up, you know, burning up in hell. And we're like, that's, that's not really generous to us. Thanks. So generosity needs to involve a certain amount of humility that says, I don't know necessarily what you need. Tell me what you need. It starts with a question, not a declaration. Second thing, true generosity involves an appropriate quantity of giving. Paul just says, look, this Jerusalem church, they are in trouble. They need something. And the Corinthians church, you have something. 
So it's time for you to reach in to your pocketbook or whatever, because this is a time where you have a lot and you can give. Third thing is uh, the idea that true generosity involves presence or mindfulness. There's another word I was looking for. So I said earlier that like giving should be thoughtful and systematic and you should plan for it. First fruits, do this first, make a plan, have a budget, be responsible with your finances. But there's another way to be generous and that is like when a need just kind of pops up. Anybody been walking down the street and all of a sudden there's a need right in front of you? And some of us were too preoccupied with something else that we just breeze by the need. So some generosity needs to be very thought out. Some generosity is spontaneous. I don't know if I want to cause more of a headache with this than it should, but like I'll just tell you this morning, got a text from Pastor Mark and the red eye at Bannerman Crossings flooded in the storms this morning. Maybe you have some time, some talents, some treasures. I don't know if he needs help, but if you have a contact with Pastor Mark, you say, man, you need some, you need some elbow grease, you need some, you need some strength, you need some something, that's a spontaneous opportunity to be generous with your time, your talents, your treasures. So be aware. And then the last thing is I think true generosity involves excellence. It involves excellence. It doesn't involve kind of just like dealing off the bottom of the deck and saying, well, you know, here's, here's the minimum amount that I can give, whether it's, whether it's an effort or whether it's finances or whether it's time. It involves, um, it involves reaching down deep and doing your best, you know? And again, the church, uh, in some of our missionary efforts, we fall victim to this. As somebody pointed out, you know, there's, there's communities around the world that think the Buffalo Bills were the most successful football team in the 1990s. You get me? So like whatever, you know, whatever we cast off from our society, we ship around the world. But what if we gave the best? What if we gave the best? Yeah, I heard stories, I guess to make it more explicit, I've heard stories of people in under-resourced communities getting like, okay, you open up a shirt again, it doesn't have a hole for your head. Why send communities in need our junk? Why can't we send them our best? And this, this, this explodes generosity into a whole new category of being because this lets me know that generosity isn't just about rich and poor. It's not just about economics. It's not just about time, talents, and treasures. It's just about any time you feel like you've been given something you didn't deserve. Anybody ever watch a movie that just, that just was so beautiful that you're just like, I'm not watching a movie. I'm being given a gift. Anybody see a work of art? Anybody have a conversation that you're just like, this transcends the conversation and this is a gift to my spirit. That is the essence of generosity. And when you dig down deep and when you bring your best of whatever you have to give, I think that gets at the heart of generosity. So to wrap up, is that me? I don't even want to know how that's happening. So the band's going to come up, and as they do, um, I want to give you kind of the why behind all this. 
the excellence sort of points at it, you know, that there's more. This is more than about resources. It's more than economics. It's, it's about being a gift. And in these same two chapters, Paul writes, you know, he's talking about the most practical way. Here's how you give. Here's how your attitude has to be while you give. But Paul says, oh, by the way, this is why you give. He says, look, you give because you know, verse 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I'm going to be watching football later on. Don't call me. My Steelers are playing. Probably going to see the sign that we see at all the football games, right? John 3.16, which says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I think in light of this verse, another way to say that is for God was so generous that he gave his one and only son. And every person in this room is a recipient of that generosity. And so we don't give just because there's a need, although we should. And we don't give, uh, we don't give appropriate quantities. We don't be humble. We don't be present. We're not just excellent just because those are wise things. But it all starts with the fact that God was generous with us. And what that ultimately means is that true generosity is an act of love. When we go out to people, we're not just like giving them a handout. We should be loving them. This is an act of love because God loved us first. And in light of that, we're going to sing the song we sang earlier. Man, yes, God, you can have it all because you gave it all. That language is not accidental for Paul. He's playing rich, poor. God is infinitely rich and he chose to be poor so that we could become rich. So we're just continuing the cycle of generosity. So let's all stand up together. And God knows that these, song, these lyrics we sing, he knows, look, having it all, you can have it all, Lord, that's a journey for us. And God's like, I know you're not there yet. But God appreciates, I was going to say, God gives participation trophies. <laughs> so just tell him now, you can have it all, Lord. Generosity starts with the cross of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.